Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunava, the Harvest, in Thornton, Colorado. This study is entitled Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to count the Omer as we chart our way from Passover to Pentecost. Lord, we say, Baruch Lohinu Melaka Olam. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to count the Omer. We're so thankful, Father, that you set us free by the power of Yeshua, which is what the Passover typifies. And we're so thankful, Father, that as we look with anticipation to the um, commemoration of Shavuot Pentecost, that this reminds us that we are being filled with the Spirit of Messiah, which is what Pentecost commemorates. But Lord, there's another reason that we look forward to Pentecost, and that's because according to the Jewish timetable, it is the commemoration of the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah. And so we are also grateful that you have grounded us in your very words of life. Thank you, Lord, for raising us up for such a time as this and for causing us to know your ways and for filling us with the Spirit so that we can walk in your ways. Help us to be lights. Help us to be ambassadors for your name, citizens of your kingdom, and witnesses of the glorious salvation that has been uh, um, that has been won uh, by the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. Thank you for this commentary to the book of Galatians. We know that the information is relevant for us as Torah communities. For indeed, Jews and Gentiles are still here. And we are still uh, bumping into one another as we share this space called community. And so give us grace and forgiveness as we uh, learn from one another, as we uh, grow in our faith and grow in our uh, dependency upon one another. But ultimately, Father, give us a view towards the final um, justification and redemption that is found in Yeshua so that we will not lose hope as we chart our way through these uh, community uh, opportunities. Uh, be with each and every student that has joined me tonight. I pray that you'll just give them um, an enlarged capacity to hear and to understand and to retain the things that they're learning. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to hold me responsible for the things that I'm teaching. Uh, give me the opportunity 
to um, share what's on my heart. And Lord, I'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's date stamp our recording. This is uh, May the 24th, 2016. Um, this is a commentary to the Galatians, to the book of Galatians, and I wrote the commentary. If you're interested in reading the entire commentary, it is presently about 180 or something pages long, uh, subject to growth as I, uh, as I do further research and find things that I need to correct or add, but if you're interested in reading the entire commentary, go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right on the top of the page, there's a link that says Galatians Commentary. Click there, and you can find all the information you need to uh, view or print the PDF file, as well as um, access all of the... Um, the audio files that I'm recording. This is a weekly study, and we meet for about an hour each week, every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. You're welcome to join us each night. The, the, the study is free. I don't charge anything for anyone. But the um, uh, you will need to enroll for the class if you want to get the notes, and if you want to join me via the uh, the webinar, there is a... Um, there's a, 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 a credentials that's required, so you'll have to follow the link on the webpage to get information about getting your, your free credentials if you'd like to join me each Tuesday evening. But we'd love to have you come on out every Tuesday evening. We, Like I said, we meet for about an hour, and then we engage in some after-class chat, um, which is exclusive to the people who are in the live chat, uh, the live session. Uh, even though I record each class each week and upload it to iTunes, to my podcasts, or I'm sorry, to my, um, I, uh, yes, to my iTunes uh, podcast page, um, I don't record the chat session, so that's an opportunity for you to just kind of dialogue with the teacher or, or with the other students. So come on out Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. All right, um, let's, uh, let's entertain some liturgy uh, for the evening. Um, if you're in if you're in the live study with me tonight, you'll see that I've got uh, the website pulled up. Uh, I've actually got a page pulled up, uh, which should show a passage out of the Tanakh. This is our liturgy out of the Old Testament. I've been using the Ezekiel 36:22 through 28 passage. Um, such a great promise that's given to the people of Israel, which, according to my theology, includes Jews and Gentiles. And this is such a great promise because it includes not only the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the outward spirit, but it also includes the promise of the um, renewed walk and um, uh, obedience to Torah, which, as you know, if you've been following my commentaries for any length of time, I am a proponent of the ongoing relevance of Torah in the life of a believer in Yeshua, a believer in Jesus, contrary to... Um, prevailing and popular Christian views. I don't think that the Torah has been relaxed in Jesus. I don't think it's been done away. Although it has been, um, it's it's been, uh, what's the word I want to use? It, it's been reworked <laughs> because in the absence of a temple and the priests and animal sacrifices and things like that, there's a good bulk of the Torah that we simply cannot do the way that the Torah prescribes. So for that reason then, God had to rework certain parts of the Torah. He didn't really do away with them. Rather, he simply enjoins us to keep as much as we can keep 
even though there are no priests and sacrifices and temple, etc., etc. So that's what I mean by, I don't think the Torah's been done away with, and yet at the same time, you're not going to find me keeping animal sacrifices in my backyard. No, 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 it's not going to happen. So let's read this passage out of the book of Ezekiel, and then we'll entertain some liturgy from the uh, New Testament as well, okay? Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, this is the ESV, and it reads, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Wonderful passages, wouldn't you agree? Not only is God promising that he's going to deliver Israel, but that he's also going to renew her. He's going to revive her. This passage in Ezekiel is just before the famous dry bones passages, uh, chapters where God promises that he's basically going to bring Israel back to life. She's already in time out. She's in exile. And so the prophet Ezekiel is writing, uh, he's contemporary with um, Jeremiah, if you'll recall, writing around the same, ta- same time, around the, around, you know, during the captivity. And we know that the Jeremiah 31.31 passage uh, is the familiar New Covenant, new, um, new Covenant passage that uh, promises that God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, etc., etc. And so this is the same promise. Let's read those verses in Hebrew as well. Such a, a rich, um, rich passage for us to consider. The Hebrew reads, "Lachin amor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Hashem lo lemaanchem ani osei bet Yisrael ki im lashem kadshi asher chelaltem bagoyim asher batem sham vakidashti et shmi hagadol ham cholal bagoyim asher chelaltem batochem v'yadu hagoyim ki ani Adonai neum Adonai Hashem." etchem <laughs> ומכל גלולכם אתחיר אתכם, ונתתי לכם לב חדש ורוח חדשה, אתן בקרבכם, והסיר אותי את לב האבן מבשרכם, ונתתי לכם לב בשר, ואת רוחי, 
אתן בקרבכם ועשיתי את אשר בחוקי תלכו ומשפטי תשמרו ועשיתם. In the final verse, ושבתם בארץ אשר נתתי לאבותיכם והייתם לי לעם ואנוכי אחיה לכם לאלוהים. Okay, let's jump over to the uh, New Testament passage here. We're going to read Galatians 5 this time. I think I read Galatians 3 last week. Um, we're talking about covenantal nomism this week, as we I think we're going to finish up on this idea of covenantal nomism. And covenantal nomism is this idea that um, one's place in the covenant is determined by God himself, and one's duty to the covenant is uh, determined by... Um, the commandments that are spelled out by the covenant. And so covenantal nomism is this idea of law-keeping couched within covenant membership, thus covenantal nomism. And I think Galatians 5 hints at um, Paul's declaration in recognition of the first century Jewish perspective on covenantal nomism, albeit uh, Paul's going to launch from the prevailing view of covenantal nomism and spin his own, what we should say, as messianic covenant nomism. And I think uh, we see part of that in this verse here. So let me read this uh, passage out of the ESV for you. I'll read the Greek as well. And then we'll perhaps maybe see covenant nomism right in front of us. Galatians 5, 1 through 6 reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And I think... um I think in verse 4, where Paul, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 3, where Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. I think that's a peek at the, at the, um, the, uh, the fleshly version of covenantal, circum, uh, covenantal nomism that was existing in Paul's day. And uh, In other words, um, Jewish people felt that they were brought into the covenant by, by works. I'm sorry, they were, let's try that again. They felt that they were brought into the covenant by their ethnicity, in other words, by birth, and that they maintained their position in the covenant by the, the uh, commandments, by keeping of the commandments, by abstaining from idolatry, etc. So, um, when Paul says, I testified every man who accepts circumcision, that first part of the verse talks about the getting into the covenant. Accepting circumcision is buzzword, code word, uh, for um, uh, either being Jewish or becoming a Jew if you weren't already born with your Jewishness. So that's what he talks about, accepting circumcision. Of course, for the baby uh, Jew who was born into a Jewish family, he had to accept circumcision, right? Not like he had a choice in the matter. So, you know, his birth position was determined by his parents. So, which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But then Paul talks about that he's obligated to keep the whole law, which... You know, from a Christian perspective, it sounds like that's a bad thing as well. But remember, covenantal nomism wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was really a good thing to be born into the family and to um, be privileged to keep the family rules, if we could describe 
covenant using family language. So, um, I think that's where covenantal nomism, that's part of where we see covenantal nomism, uh, in view is getting in, staying in, um, language is, uh, the, the, uh, part of the, um, uh, the import of Paul's passage here. Let's, uh, jump into the Greek of that same, um, those same few verses, and then we'll jump into our study tonight. Um, let's start with verse 1 there. It reads, Te Lutheria, Hemos Christos, Elithrosen, Stekete un kai me, Palin zugo duleas in a keste, Ide ego palas, Lego, Human hati in pertem nesta, Christos humas uden o felase, Marturomai de palin, Panti anthropo, Pertem nomen o hati o felites, Estin halanton namon poesai, Catergit abo Christu, hoitinus in namo, decauste, tes hartas exabasate, in that um, Greek word um, uh, decauste are being justified, the verb uh, being in the um, uh, present indicative, uh, present tense indicative mood. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, being justified in our commentary tonight. Let's keep reading the Greek. Uh, verse 5 says, Heme scarp numati epistios. Elpida decaiusunes apectecomitha. And the final verse, Engar Christo Jesu ute per tome, tiesque aute, acrobustia ala, pistis di agapes in ergumene. And that's our Greek. Okay, so that'll be our liturgy for tonight. I hope you are enjoying the liturgy. Um, if you have any questions about why I read the liturgy, uh, just shoot me an email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com, Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. I'd be more than happy to explain uh, what I mean and why I'm reading the liturgy. If you're in the um, class with me tonight, you'll see that I've got uh, the table of contents pulled up, just so we can get a kind of an overview on the map of where we're at in our journey through this commentary to the book of Galatians. Uh, we started with a preface, oh, what, uh, 50, has, I mean, how many weeks ago has it been? Well, obviously it's been about 27 weeks or so, a little more because we take a two-week break between every 10-week semester. But essentially, um, we started with a preface uh, so long ago where we entertained 10 common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians, and then there was a brief introduction, and then there are 10 topical sections to my commentary, um, 1 through 10, and we're at number 5 right now, Commental Nomism and Justification. So you can see on the map that we're working our way down through these topics. We talked about covenant of circumcision, we talked about works of law, and um, I think we're going to finish up Commental Nomism and Justification tonight, which means next week we'll be ready to uh, start looking at Acts chapter 10. And then we'll go from there to another common phrase in Paul's writings under the law. And then we'll have a section where we deal with Torah observance, uh, Shomer Mitzvot. And then there'll be a summary. And then um, this kind of short section called the promise, trust and obey. And then what happens to the commentary is that it turns towards what most people would expect from a commentary to the book of the Bible. And that is basically a look at um, chapter and verse. I don't cover every verse in the um, book of Galatians. What I did instead is I selected a few what I call tough passages. And the reason I call them tough is because of the um, the sharp disagreements that often arise when you have a an audience of 
traditional Christians and traditional uh, Torah community uh, members uh, when they come into discussion with one another over the relevance of, say, is the law done away with or things like that, then uh, these are the fighting verses. <laughs> these are the tough passages that get thrown around between the two groups. And uh, most of you know that I belong to the Torah community group, the Messianic movement group, the, the group that espouses ongoing relevance of Torah for the life of a, of a believer in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And so I'm going to be um, on one side of the argument and my Christian um, friends and family members, pastors, etc., are going to be on the other side of the argument. Of course, this is an in-house debate, meaning we're not arguing over the centrality of Jesus. We're not arguing over how one becomes saved. We're, to, we're arguing over what is the ongoing relevance once we are saved. So I hope you guys don't lose the big picture there. So um, that's a kind of an overview of the map of where we're at in the book of Galatians, at least in my commentary. Let's turn now to the commentary itself. Um, if, you'll, if, you're, uh, if you're in the class with me, you'll see that I've got um, the first page pulled up uh, where, uh, where the uh, topic number five, covenantal nomism and justification, and I'm just going to pull the uh, working definition for covenantal nomism just in case you're unfamiliar with the term. Um, I know a lot of people when I when I dialogue and ask them, what, what do you think about covenantal nomism? What do you think about... Uh, the first century view of covenantal nomism is um, your average Bible reader isn't familiar with this term, covenantal nomism. So um, let me just give you a brief uh, uh, working definition. Um, this is theopedia.com. They, they read, quote, Covenantal nomism is the belief that first century Palestinian Jews did not believe in works righteousness. Essentially, it's the belief that once brought into the Abrahamic covenant through birth and one stays into the covenant through works. It suggests that the Jewish view of relationship with God is that keeping the laws based only on a prior understanding of relationship with God. And then in the middle of the pass of that quote there, I want to read one quote from from E.P. Sanders. He's the author that uh, introduced this phrase, covenantal nomism. Briefly put, this is from his book, briefly put, covenantal nomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established, established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments while providing means of atonement for transgressions, end quote. Okay, with that, uh, let's jump down into the commentary where we left off. Um, we are on page 49, and we're right in the middle of the page. We left off with a few quotes from the Bible where we're, we're in this discussion about justification. And... Um, it's my understanding that the Bible presents justification in essentially two uh, aspects. They are not opposing aspects, nor are they, um, nor are they contradictory or in any way. Rather, they are complementary. In my understanding, they work in tandem, and yet they do have a kind of an uh, an order to them. And one of the aspects of justification, or you could say being declared righteous, or you could say, um, uh, 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 what's the other word? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, righteousness, justification, these types of things. But one of the aspects is uh, behavioral righteousness or behavioral justification. And one of the aspects is forensic uh, justification or uh, forensic righteousness. What do we mean by forensic? I mean positional. I mean the, um, saving 
justification or saving righteousness. And so essentially we have these two aspects that are, that are painted for us by the uh, scriptures. We have living right and we have being right in the sense that one is declared right in the courtroom of God's uh, justice. So let's just look at it here from my commentary perspective. What I'm describing first, or what I'm really kind of uh, centering on for the moment, is the idea that God gave the Torah to Israel in order to cause her to walk righteously, in order to be seen by God's eyes as a people who are doing the right thing. Remember, Israel, was, from, from the Exodus perspective, from the Exodus narrative, Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt, and then she was brought through the desert to the foot of Sinai and given the Torah. And in the giving of Torah, we see essentially the beginning of a covenant on the behavioral level, a covenant relationship on the behavioral level. God basically says, Israel, um, now that you have been set free, now that you are declared as my children, now that I've, I am in possession, now that you're my possession, now that I own you, I want to give you my words and my ways and cause you to walk in them. And I want you to walk in them and start doing the right thing. I don't want you to live like former slaves. I don't want you to live like slaves anymore. I don't want you to live like uh, the, the old ways. I don't want you to, to, to live like Egyptians anymore. I want you to live like my people. So the Torah been, begins to describe the right thing to do from God's perspective. And this right thing to do is described by Moses in Deuteronomy 6.25 as righteousness. Um, the writer to the book of Psalms, which is where I'm going to start a commentary tonight, at the very last verse, Psalm 19, verse 11, reads, Moreover, speaking of the commandments, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. End quote. So we see that the book of Psalms describes that keeping the law, keeping the commandments, like Israel was enjoined to do by God, keeping the commandments drew... The reward of God. It drew a reward. It drew um, the favor of God. Now, the first question you're probably asking is, was this a salvific reward? Well, the answer is no. Not exactly. Not on the limited level. Not on that perspective. And so let's pick up my commentary, pick up the reading right in the middle of the page, uh, middle of page 49. And I say... Paul recognizes that to obey Torah as a circumcised, albeit perhaps fleshly Jew, was in fact a good thing. Because even from a limited temporal perspective, obedience draws the temporal rewards of righteousness and justification of God. In other words, on a fleshly level, God counts your obedience as righteous. In other words, you're a righteous person. You are justified on the temporal level level, on the fleshly level, uh, which is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. What does the quote from Romans 2.13 say? And verse 25, we'll jump between those two verses. Paul says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, and we're talking about behavioral righteousness there, it's not the hearers of the law who are, if I could just insert the word, behaviorally righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be behaviorally justified. And we already talked about how that um, this word righteous and justified are base, basically the same Greek word, the dikaios, or the dikaio, or the dikaiosune word, word groups, right? They're all referred, so whether your Bible translated as righteous or justified, it's the same Greek word. 
So it's not the hearers of the law who are counted as be, as behaviorally righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who are behaviorally righteous. This tells us right away that from God's perspective, the Torah was meant to be done. It's not something that was given to be, um, say, uh, honored, revered, um, talked about, but not done. No, it's it's a document of doing, like the old Nike slogan says. It was meant to be done, so just do it. Just do it. So God gave Israel the Torah because he expected them to do it. Romans 2.25 goes on to say, For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. And, um, wow, a whole sermon in that passage alone. I wish I could um, elaborate on it. But the point I'm trying to highlight by bringing up the verse is that Paul recognizes, like Moshe of old, like God, that the Torah has value if you do it. And in circumcision has value. Jewish identity has value. It matters to God because the Torah itself is a document that is valuable in God's eyes. Therefore, it's it's not something that should have been easily dismissed by the newly emerging Christian communities of the first century. Let's keep reading my commentary. Thus, physical Israel's covenantal nomism perspective is not altogether an improper response on the part of limited covenant members. I don't really think that Paul completely frowned at covenantal nomism, the idea that getting in the covenant was done by God's election, and that by staying in the covenant was um, was done by, through the expectance of keeping the commandments. Paul agreed fundamentally with, or essentially with both of those concepts, that God elected Israel and that God expected Israel to keep his commandments. So within that limited um, definition of, of covenantal nomism, Paul's going to agree. However, however, as I keep explaining my commentary, with equal precision, Paul goes on to explain that quote, and this is a quote from Romans 9, with, with my own inserted emphasis, so listen up. Paul goes on to explain, quote, Not all who are descended from physical Israel belong to remnant Israel, and not all are lasting children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. But through Isaac shall your lasting offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of a God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. End quote. That's Romans 9, 6 through 8 from the ESV. And I inserted some extra wording there. Thus, from this passage, we learn that there exists an Israel within Israel, which in point of fact is the remnant of Israel, right? That's the smaller subset of Israel couched within the larger national Israel. This remnant dwells within Israel's family olive tree of Romans chapter 11. And you can recall from um, verses 17 through 24 that Paul introduces this olive tree metaphor. Yet, however, the remnant of this passage is not characterized primarily by ethnicity or even Torah observance, which are the two sides of the coin of covenantal nomism or works of the law, right? Your ethnicity on one side of the coin, your um, Torah obedience on the other side of the coin, you strike the two together, you get one coin that I like to define as covenantal nomism or uh, the, the, um, the other term, works of law. Either one of those, are, they're, they're kind of synonymous terms. Uh, covenantal nomism kind of being the broader term, the larger umbrella term and works of law kind of being the smaller working halakhic term, as, as it were. So, um, the remnant is not characterized necessarily by works of law or by covenantal nomism. Rather, instead, the remnant, I believe, 
is characterized by faith in the Messiah of Israel, not to the exclusion, I might add, of covenantal nomism. What does Paul say in Galatians, which we're going to study once we get to it, <laughs> weeks or months from now? In Galatians 3, 26-29, out of the ESV, it reads, quote, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, speaking of both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, through faith. For as many of you, again, Jews and Gentiles, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now notice this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. End quote. Notice Paul is not saying that in Messiah there's neither Jew or Greek ethnicity, nor neither slave or free or male or female. What he is trying to explain is that within the boundaries of covenant membership as defined from God's perspective, with the view of salvation in view, with, with, with a salvific picture in view. In other words, not limited covenant membership, but lasting covenant membership, the kind that carries into the age to come, and the kind that carries into the eternal age, right? In other words, we're talking about how God sees a saved covenant member, not just a limited fleshly covenant member, an earthly covenant member, but a heavenly covenant member. How does God see us? And in that perspective, Paul tells us that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. In other words, there's not a prerequisite in terms of ethnicity that one has to have in, in, before God will count him as a lasting covenant member. And that's the whole point of this discussion on covenantal nomism and justification. It's that Paul is trying to explain to the Jewish people of his day those people who had um, basically hijacked uh, covenant membership and and made it a Jewish-only membership, a Jewish-only Torah uh, for people, uh, for covenant members. Paul's trying to get them to understand that Gentiles can be counted as genuine covenant members as long as they place their faith in Yeshua and as long as they don't succumb to the error of, of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. So let's keep reading my commentary, and I, I think I'm going to flesh this out for you. Like I said, there's only 12 pages to this section, and we're on page, we're on the 10th of those 12 pages. So um, I think we're going to be able to finish tonight. We're near the top of page 50. This implies, this, this passage here out of Galatians, this implies that a Jewish member of Israel can be born into the first level of covenant membership that I've been describing. Remember, I said there's about like at least two levels. The first level is how Jewish people are born into it. But then, I go on to say, they they're expected to matriculate to the second level of covenant membership without leaving their heritage olive tree or the Torah behind. Jews do not cease to be Jews once they come to faith in Messiah. That's contrary to what some people are taught Sadly, by the way. What is more, Gentiles do not need to take on legal Jewish status in order to be counted as forensically righteous in God's eyes. And that's much to the consternation of what many Jewish people are taught, right? So you see, we've got both groups. 
that find themselves in error at times and find themselves in need of being corrected. We have Jewish people who believe that Jews and only Jews can be saved and can be counted as covenant members and can be uh, obligated and expected to keep Torah. And on the other side of the coin or the other side of the street, we oftentimes have Gentile Christians who believe that the Torah has been done away with and that Jews need to cease being Jews in order to become Christians. And both groups need to stop and simply read what the Bible says on the topic. Right? I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but I do think that as a um, as a uh, uh, as one who is uh, born a Jew but also has accepted uh, Yeshua as my Messiah, I think it puts me in a, a kind of a unique position to see both. Uh, perspectives because I can move somewhat freely between both groups. When I when I uh, visit uh, uh, traditional synagogues and I'm wearing my kippah and they ask me if I'm Jewish and I can say, yeah, I'm Jewish. Oh, okay, well, great. Sit down and study Torah with us. And then when I go to church, uh, I still keep my kippah on, by the way. Um, I still look like a Jew in church, but if they ask me, you know, it's funny because I visited churches and had Christians approach me and start witnessing to me. <laughs> because they assume that maybe because I'm Jewish, maybe I don't believe in Jesus. You know, I, I don't know whether to be offended or to be um, uh, happy, right? Praise God that they're witnessing the Jewish people. But uh, to assume that I'm unsaved just because I'm a Jew, well, you know, what can I say? But the point I'm trying to make is um, I've I've been in both camps, and it's 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 a it's kind of a unique place to be to see both sides and to see and to be able to dialogue with the um, the. Uh, uh, the, the groups on both sides of the street and get their perspective. In my commentary, I go on to say that on the contrary, contrary to uh, Jews ceasing to be Jews and Gentiles having to become Jews, on the contrary, the passage in Galatians here quoted uh, from Galatians 3 is teaching that as one people group of God, one people group of God, the remnant of Israel from Romans 11 is... Um, our primary covenant identification, because it's rooted in the work of the cross. We are remnant Israel. We Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. We are remnant Israel because our primary identification is in Yeshua himself, as opposed to our former ethnic boundaries of Jew and Gentile. Again, we don't stop being Jews. We don't stop being Gentiles. We don't stop being males, females, etc. So I go on to say our messianic covenantal nomism, if I can coin a term myself, with no disrespect to E.P. Sanders, our covenantal nomism is similar in structure to the, the covenantal nomism that Sanders describes, right? It's similar, yet it necessarily differs from unsaved Israel's covenantal nomism, right? It, in, in, in here's how. Ours is not a pattern of religion that is exclusively Jewish. Understand? Our Messianic Covenant Nomism instead envisions those grafted into Israel from the nations via faith in Yeshua, meaning non-Jews. So um, you can read Ephesians 2, 13 through 22 to see where Paul talks about how the Gentiles, former Gentiles actually, because he's using the word ethnos there in, in the uh, sense of pagan, former pagans. But he talks about Gentiles being brought into the commonwealth of Israel grafted in language is being described there. And our messianic covenant nomism also includes the obedience of faith that Paul speaks about in Romans 1.5 as well as Romans 16.26, which I might add um, conveniently forms bookends, Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. 
Romans 16.26, the obedience of faith. We've got these bookends that Paul talks about, the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. But our Messianic covenant nomism also includes the commandments that we do that are done for the sake of the law of Christ, which we read about in John 14.15 as well as Galatians 6.2. We already know that we're under the law of Christ. We're not under condemnation. But what is the law of Christ? Well, I won't tell you now. We'll talk about it later. So I go on to say that our messianic justification is rooted in a work that God has done through his son Yeshua. It's not done, it's not, it's, it's, it's not rooted in a work that we might do on our own. It's not rooted in our ethnicity, and it's not rooted in our keeping of the commandments, which are, again, the two sides of the one coin that I describe as works of the law. Let's read this uh, wonderful quote from uh, Paul in Romans 3, 21 through 24. ESV reads like this, quote, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, and we know this is forensic, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we know it's forensic, because it's linked to Jesus Christu in the Greek, Jesus Christ. For all who believe, what does Paul go on to say? For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, right? No distinction between whom? Between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, not earned, but as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. End quote. So, um, again, this verse is just affirming what we've been learning all along. Covenantal nomism that is rooted in ethnicity is wrong-headed. It's not wrong to be zealous for the law. We know that the Jews in the book of Acts 21 were zealous for the law and they were believers. And we know that Moshe describes a righteousness that's uh, dis that's um, a righteousness that is laid out by the law, and we know that because we just read Deuteronomy uh, six twenty five as well as the Romans two passage where it says the doers of the law will be justified, right? So and Ro and in Romans ten, Paul's going to also go on to describe the righteousness that Moshe describes in the law, that the man who does these things shall live by them. So. Um, it's not wrong to keep the law. So we know that this passage is not denigrating to our observance. It's not, when it says that a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, I believe Paul's simply trying to get us to understand that, that because the law was given to Israel, the justification that's rooted in Messiah had to come from outside of the, outside of the, the, um, cultural boundaries that were uh, described by Israel's covenant membership with God in order for the picture to be painted of justification uh, through Messiah. In other words, it's, it's that the justification of Messiah transcends the cultural boundaries that the law imposes on people. Um, that's, that's a meaty statement, and I, and I, I, I don't know how, how to unpack it in this short amount of time that we have. Just keep listening to my commentary, and I think you'll get the uh, gist of what I'm trying to say. Let's keep reading my commentary. We're near the uh, bottom of the page, uh, page 50. That I purport that Paul's opponents likely believed that justification came from belonging to a people group in possession of the Torah is a given by this point in my commentary. If you haven't picked that up, by week 27, um, you're in trouble. Um, 
even if we allow for the fact that the Greek nouns and verbs used to describe justification and justify in Paul, which uh, for justification it's dikaiosune, and for justify it's dikaiutai, um, even if we allow for the fact that these uh, usages in Paul can in fact at times imply um, past, present, and future aspects of our, of our behavioral and forensic positions before God. And when I say past, I mean... Um, when we're talking about our salvation, past as when, as when we were initially saved, present as in our ongoing daily life of sanctification as saved people in the Spirit, sanctification via the Spirit, and future aspects of our salvation as in our um, behavioral forensic position before God uh, that we see in when God finally declares us perfect in the sight at the end of the age, right? When we get the final declaration, he declared us righteous before God, before himself. Declared us righteous when we first became saved. And we know that he declares us righteous now because of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation. But we know that there's a final declaration that we await. So that's what I mean by past, present, future. So uh, with that in view, nevertheless, the overall implication vital to our understanding of this term justification is exactly how we were, are, and will be justified. And I think that's what um, Paul is is stressing in his um, usages of this phrase justification. It's not necessarily that we, um, not necessarily the concept of justification. I don't think he, he doesn't seem to spend a lot of time on explaining what justification means because it's familiar language to the Jewish people of Paul's day. Justification both on the limited as well as eternal levels. Both of those concepts were well known to Paul's uh, readership. Rather, how one is justified or brought into the covenant is where Paul spends a lot of his time. Thus, works of the law taught one way of getting into um, covenant membership or being declared righteous, and Paul taught something entirely different. Isn't that true? Let's keep reading my commentary. We're on the top of page 51. As for introducing the topic of justification at this juncture in our section here on covenantal nomism, I basically intended to briefly interject that we should begin to realize by now that Paul intends his readers in Galatia, both Jewish and Gentile, to agree with him that even though a person might not have legalistic tendencies in mind when loyalty to the Torah is in question, right? Not everybody thinks in legalistic terms. Nevertheless, such loyalty to Torah must not be confused with merit when it comes to God's declaration of justified, no matter if that justification is described as static or ongoing. What I mean by static is salvation, righteousness, or ongoing when, we, when we're talking about behavioral. So static is, you know, when, you're, when we're talking about um, getting saved, I think we're describing what we what um, theologians call a monergistic work, a one-time God working by himself action on God's part where God brings us into right standing with himself through genuine faith in Yeshua, his son. That's what we call sanct um, justification. That's essentially a monergistic static work of God. But then, once that takes place, if you'll recall, once you become saved, the life of sanctification begins. That's where we describe what theologians say is a synergistic, not a monergistic, but a synergistic work of God. And the synergistic work is the 
working together of God and His Spirit with us. So we got we got our will and God's will working together. That's the synergism there, or sometimes it's described as synergism. But synergistic is the ongoing behavioral um, sanctification process that that uh, we should be working out, right? That's that's the part that we have to do, what, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our job, right? That's our job. We rely on the Holy Spirit, but we've got something to do. So that's what I mean by the static and ongoing. Let's keep reading. Put another way, I think Paul would affirm the inherent goodness of being zealous for the law that we read about in Acts 20, 21 20. And also um, reference um, a few verses out of Romans 2.13, Romans 2.25, Romans 3.31, where Paul talks about, do we make void the law through faith? No, we establish the law. Romans 7.12, where Paul talks about um, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7.16, uh, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Uh, Romans 7.22 and Romans 7.25, where Paul talks about, um, I agree in the inner part with the Torah, um, these are all good verses that talk about essentially the positive value of Torah obedience, which is why we're bringing this topic up in this particular paragraph. So let's keep reading. Um, Paul's going to affirm the inherent goodness of being zealous of Torah so long as one, the believer, is reminded that this is in fact the expected behavioral response of faithful that is justified covenant members in the first place. Right? And this is in agreement with the Torah itself, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, as well as 1 John 5, 3. This would also explain this idea of um, being zealous for the Torah. This would also explain the positive sentiment, sentiments that Paul expresses about maintaining obedience to the Torah as a believer, I might add. Let's keep reading. We're almost done. From the perspective of covenantal gnomism, then, the, quote, yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear, end quote, that we read about in Acts 15.10, most certainly is not Hashem's gracious Torah, right? Why would God give us a yoke that we couldn't bear? Why would God give us a yoke that was unbearable? Why would God give us a yoke where the implication is that it's something that we want to throw off, right? It doesn't really follow through with the logic of the um, theology that's laid out by the Torah itself, especially the verses that we read earlier in Psalms where, where the, the Torah is seen as a reward, it's seen as something that is um, something that's highly valued, right? Greater, uh, sweet, sweeter than honeycomb, um, you know, uh, fi- uh, greater, than, better than fine gold, things like that. Doesn't sound like a yoke that we can't bear, right? Especially when First John tells us that his uh, commandments are not burdensome. So, um, if it's not the yoke that our fathers couldn't bear, then what exactly is Peter talking about in Acts 15.10? I think it's most likely the man-made system of righteous behaviors regulated by the prevailing halakha of that day. In other words, I think it's um, it's the um, traditions of men, it's the oral traditions, it's the, it's the minutiae, it's the focusing on the externals to the exclusion oftentimes of the internal. Covenantal gnomism did not really view Torah observance and supposed maintenance of membership as a burden the way that many later Christian exegetes did and still do down to this day. This is my commentary that I'm reading here. It's hardly likely that non-Messianic Jewish leaders of Paul's day as well as today would have pejoratively labeled their own written and oral Torah as unbearable. Right? They felt that Torah was a gift. Torah was a privilege. However, Peter 
in his in his um, statement in Acts 15, Peter was a Messianic Jew. He's not an unbelieving Jew. His eyes were opened by the risen Yeshua. One would imagine then that the yoke Peter was referring to in Acts 15 was more than likely the burdensome extra fences that the leaders have placed around the written word of God. There's a footnote uh, in my commentary at number 41 that, uh, where I want you to recall Yeshua's words in Matthew 23.4 uh, about certain Jewish leaders tying up, quote, heavy burdens, end quote, and laying them upon men's shoulders, but not being willing to lift one finger to move them, right? So we can see the yoke there. It's probably their own extra-biblical um, um, requirements or traditions that they had kind of tacked on to the written Torah. God's written Torah, the point I'm trying to make is God's written Torah, uh, done by the power of God and by the power of the Spirit, should not be a burden. Of course, outside of the Spirit of God, trying to keep all of God's words... Uh, yeah, you might you might find some burden there. Let's keep reading my commentary. I say again, the Judaisms of that day were not advocating works-based salvation as articulated by the current church leaders of today. Rather, a covenantal gnomism for all who would be counted as justified in the community of Israel was the standard party line expected to be towed by every good Jew. The bringing near of the Gentile believers was not affected through negating the Torah, but through overcoming the rabbinic teaching that required Gentiles to become Jews through becoming proselytes in order to be received into the covenant people of Israel. Make sense? Okay. The, covenant, the uh, gospel message of the apostles proclaimed that, like Abraham of old, covenant membership was based on faith, not upon the flesh or upon ethnic status. Let's keep reading. We're almost done. In conclusion to this section on covenantal nomism and justification, we should recognize now that in regards to the pattern of religious membership and behavior expected for general, I'm sorry, expected for genuine and lasting covenant members in Israel, membership enjoyed by both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, I might add, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, nicely dictates and describes the decision that was reached by the Jerusalem Council. Let's read that passage at, at length. Uh, we're at the top of page 52, which is the last page in the section tonight. Here's Ephesians. Quote, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is Paul, he continues. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to what? Let's keep reading. For he himself is our peace, who has made himself both one, made, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, not killing the law, by the way, but killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, 
and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, we both Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, speaking to the Gentiles primarily again, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who are the fellow saints and members? Well, the existing Jewish believers at the time. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. End quote. Wow, what a fantastic passage. Essentially, as I see it, this passage here that we just read, um, the reference is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The way I see it, this whole passage here is essentially a snapshot of the commentary of the book of Galatians. <laughs> Makes sense? Paul's explaining the same concept in Ephesians here. The idea that through Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles find equality as covenant members, genuine and lasting covenant members, not just limited fleshly covenant membership. You see those two levels or two aspects of covenant membership that are being displayed here again for us by the Bible? We have covenant membership on the temporal level, which is basically seen through, through the eyes of circumcision, Jewish identity, and the like. But then we have eternal um, covenant membership that is seen through the picture that's painted by circumcision of the heart and genuine faith in Yeshua. Let's read the last paragraph in my commentary, and then if I have any other um, um, notes that I want to highlight or any other of uh, uh, points that I want to make, I'll bring them out now. This last paragraph in my commentary reads, quote, My ongoing detailed discussions about circumcision, works of the law, covenantal nomism, and justification are meant to allow us as Bible students to more carefully understand the very real social and religious struggles that the first century Jewish and Christian communities faced as they interacted with one another so long ago. Many non-Messianic Jews believed they were justified by being Jewish and upholding the works of the law. That's what I describe as works of the law in, in, in general. Works of the law is not just doing the Torah, but works of the law encompasses the, the belief that one was first a covenant an existing covenant member based on his birth as a Jew. And um, we want to recall that the 4QMMT fragment instructed its members to adhere to their, quote, works of the law, end quote, if they wish to be counted as, quote, righteous, end quote. So, same concept there. Works of the law in Paul is probably um, modeled after the already existing phenomenon in first century Israel of um, works of the law where, in other words, I don't think Paul made up the phrase. It's, it's an existing term that was already being used by the Judaisms of his day to describe um, covenant membership that one gained at birth, which then obligated one to keep the commandments in order to maintain their status as a covenant member. Let's keep reading. Many Christ-believing Jews, uh, Messianic Jews, understood that they were justified by faith in Christ and by continued reliance upon the Ruach HaKodesh. So, there, there, that sentence right there is a description of the Messianic version of works of the law. In other words, from the earthly slash fleshly temporal 
version of works of law. A person gets in the covenant by being a Jew, and a person stays in the covenant by doing the commandments. In other words, that's their version of works of law. But the Messianic version of works of law is that one gets into the covenant by faith in Yeshua, and one stays in the covenant by faith in Yeshua, by reliance on the Spirit. So um, there's, the structure is the same. Paul's not going to completely dis, dismantle the, the structure of covenant nomism or works of law, but he's simply going to redefine them. He's going to get uh, national Israel to understand that the um, limited must give way to the eternal, right? The flesh must give way to the spirit. The shadow must give way to the reality, as it were. So let's keep reading. The poor Gentiles not raised in a Torah community, yet seeking to turn from idolatry unto the living God, were caught up in the middle of these Jewish power exchanges over salvation and sanctification. Right? They were caught up in the middle because they were Gentiles. And um, I go on to say that, uh, to be sure, it is not um, just Shaul's letter to the Galatians that portrays these intense social struggles for us to assess. Instead, we see this going on really throughout the entire New Testament. Um, it's, it's, it's documented for us in the book of Romans, as we've already seen. Um, we see essentially this, this ethnocentric uh, Jewish exclusivism and the covenantal nomism, works of the law concept going on in uh, the book of uh, Ephesians that I just quoted from above there. And then also I go on to say that as we continue to examine the rest of the apostolic writings more closely, we're going to see that it's not just Paul who had his hands full with Israel's covenant blindness. Rather, a careful examination of a familiar story in the book of Acts reveals some surprising details concerning how do Gentiles fit within Israel as well. Allow me to elaborate on Acts chapter 10 in a way in which perhaps the average Christian has never considered. And with that, we've reached the end of another topical section, Covenantal Nomism and Justification, section number five, and we've reached the end there. So, um, in my concluding a few minutes to this uh, section, I think it's important for us, as we continue to study through the book of Galatians, um, the scope of the um, social and religious um, worldview that Paul lived in and moved among, um, which caused him to write the way he wrote, caused him to um, pen the words very carefully. We have to keep reminding ourselves. I think Sanders did us a um, he did us a favor. He did us a great service, the uh, Christian community, by um, doing the research into first century Israel and kind of freeing. The, uh, the the picture of Israel, kind of setting it free from the centuries-long stereotype that the Christian church had um, had cast Israel in, and that was a stereotype of of kind of stone-cold legalists of 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 doing the Torah routinely because they thought they were going to be saved by their Torah obedience. In other words, um, what the way I described works of the law for so many weeks in this commentary. Uh, described through the lens of the prevailing Christian view, which is doing the law, keeping the law for meritorious purposes, keeping the law because they think it's going to save them. Covenantal nomism, by comparison, doesn't really doesn't really describe Torah keeping that way, does it? And as I close, 
one of the um, one of the agendas that I've been um, presenting. In other words, I have some. Hit, I have. They're not really hidden agendas, but they are kind of um, my own. Uh, oh, what's the word I want to use? The, uh, um, there's. It's. It's not really. I guess it's a sub theme to my commentaries. And and here here's what I'm trying to say. Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles, those people today who find themselves securely rooted in their position in Messiah, securely rooted and convicted of who they are in Jesus, with no question, no doubt. They don't believe they're getting in by works. They don't believe they're getting in by ethnicity. They don't believe they're getting in because they're Catholic. They don't get. They don't believe, believe any of these other um, counterfeit uh, salvific ways of getting in, right? These people, people who are who are who know they're saved and know that they're on their way to heaven, know that they're filled with the Spirit. These people, these are the people that I like to identify with because I firmly believe that I'm one of these people, not because of anything I've done, but these are the people that I'm trying to um, trying to identify with in this way. We keep Torah as Jews and Gentiles. Because it is our covenant responsibility. It, are, it is our divine mandate. It is who we are in Messiah. It is the expression of our loyalty to God and to his people. Remember, many of the commandments found in the Torah don't only describe loyalty and service to God. Much of the Torah outlines our service to one another. Right? So when God tells us, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or might, as we read it in the Hebrew. Um, and then Yeshua picks up on that and, and tells us what the second greatest commandment is, along with the first, love your neighbor as yourself. So we got these two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Notice that loving God is a description of our service to God, our obedience to God, our loyalty to God, and therefore, it is not really optional if we are a child of God. Make sense? We don't optionally, we don't, we don't consider um, being loyal to God. We rather, we, we simply do. We simply, um, we simply obey, right? But by the same token, we also don't consider it an option to love our neighbor. It's an imperative. It's an imperative. It's not an option to love our neighbor. If you've been set free by God and you are a child of God, you are a child of Abraham, you are a member of the Abrahamic covenant, then you are also a member of the Mosaic covenant because the Mosaic covenant is couched. It is um, encapsulated. It is... Um, um, oh, what's the word? on It's bracketed within the Abrahamic covenant. And so... Torah obedience, as I close, is not really optional, in my opinion. It's not something that the church should have considered as optional. I think it was a ploy of the devil, of the adversary, to to make it um, the position of the um, emerging Christian church to to say that the Torah was for Jews only and to 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 think that the Torah was something that's optional and something that's passe, something that's done away. I think it's I think it's the adversary's trick to get us away from as believers, to get us away from the words of God and to cause us to lose our to lose sight of the anchor 
that God's word provides for us, right? And so uh, my challenge to you today in closing is don't say that the Torah is for Jews only. It's not. It really isn't. The Torah is for covenant members. And when you keep the law, when you keep the Torah, when you find yourself keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, when you find yourself putting a mezuzah on your door, when you find yourself wrapping tefillin, when you find yourself praying the set time prayers, when you find yourself keeping the, the festivals outlined in Leviticus chapter 23, when you find yourself keeping kosher, when you find yourself um, wearing mezuzah on your clothing, I'm sorry, wearing a tzitzit on your clothing, when you find yourself doing all of these things that many people have traditionally labeled Jewish, just stop and remind yourself, these things aren't Jewish. These things are for covenant members. And if you do them, they're not designed to make you look like a Jew. They're designed to make you look like a covenant member. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. And um, for those of you who are in the live class and want to stay with me for the um, after class chat, you're certainly welcome to stay. You don't have to. Um, but for those of you who are not with me live, uh, the commentary will end after my dismissal and prayer. Okay, let's pray. Abba, I bless your name. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for drawing us unto yourself. I thank you, Father, that not by works that we have done, but by your Spirit, you drew us. You drew us, Father. You rescued us from darkness. You set us on a sure foundation. You filled us with your Spirit, Lord, and you have caused us, like Ezekiel says, to walk into your ways. Lord, we know that it is by your Spirit that we can know Messiah and confess his name and declare that Jesus is Lord. And by this we will do. By the power of the Spirit, we will, we will take a stand. By the power of the risen Messiah, we will stand in the armor of Ephesians chapter 10. We will take a stand for uh, righteousness. We will take a stand against the wickedness, against the darkness, against the rulers, the powers of this world, uh, the wickedness in high places that Ephesians chapter 6 describes. Thank you, Father, for giving us the armor to wear. Thank you for the, the belt of, tr of uh, truthfulness, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Thank you that we can take up the... Um, shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the adversary. Thank you that we can wear the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And there's that secret weapon, the one that no one can take away from us, and that is praying at all times in the Spirit. Oh, bless you, Father, for all of these wonderful truths that are anchored in the Word of God. So may we, Father, put on the Word of God, and as we put on Messiah. May we let our minds be renewed by the washing of the water of the Word. Help us to avail ourselves of the Scriptures. Help us to be anchored in the truths of the Torah so that we might not be swayed back and forth, tossed to and fro like winds tossed back and forth. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to this place and that you are um, making us to be lights in this dark place. Give us the opportunity to witness Help us to confess Yeshua among those who don't yet know. Lord, bring us uh, through this week blessed and refreshed, and bring us next week ready once again to study the book of Galatians. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. 
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>